everyone, and welcome to the third episode of the Lincoln's podcast, Tax and Stuff. My name is Kim Arnold, and I am a manager here at Lincoln's. In today's episode, we are joined by our very first external guest presenter, Ben Ritchie, who is a crypto expert. Also joining me later in the main subject of this episode is Phil Mortimer, who is one of my fellow managers here at Lincoln's. So as you may have guessed, today we are going to learn all about crypto, which was by far one of our biggest requests when we first said we were going to do this podcast and we're asking for feedback. So I'm very excited for this. Um, So today's episode is going to be split into two parts. The cryptocurrency is our main part, which will come a bit later. And first, I'm going to do a mini subject on capital gains tax. But as always, the very first thing I'm going to do is our disclaimer. The matters discussed in today's episode are of a general nature and do not consider individual circumstances. Please speak to your accountant for individual advice. Please also note that we are not financial advisors and while we are discussing cryptocurrency today, this is not us recommending this investment. Cryptocurrency is a very complex investment and should be discussed with a financial advisor. As I mentioned, our mini subject today is on capital gains tax, and I wanted to focus mainly on how capital gains work on investments such as shares. We will also dive in to um, capital gains on crypto in the main subject, by the way. So if you are just a general investor and not a share trader, so this does not apply to share traders, then this is how capital gains tax will work on your investments. If you purchase some shares and then sell them, you will need to pay capital gains tax when you lodge your next tax return. When you sell shares, the way it works is you take the cost base of the shares, which is how much you paid for them, plus any brokerage you may have paid. Then you deduct from this your selling price and your selling price is how much you sold them for less any brokerage you paid. If your selling price is lower than your cost base, then you have made a capital loss. This still needs to be entered into your tax return, but it has no tax effect. So if your selling price is higher than your cost base, though, then you need to enter it into your tax return. But there are two ways that this can work. So the first way it can work is if you bought and sold them within a 12 month period, then the difference between the selling cost and the cost base is how much you will pay tax on at your rate. If you have bought and sold them, but held the shares for longer than 12 months, then you calculate the difference between the selling cost and the cost base, but then you also get to apply a 50% general discount, and this is the amount you will pay tax on. So for example, if I bought my shares for $50 and then I sold them for $100, my gross capital gain is $50. However, if I've held them for longer than 12 months, then I get to apply the 50% general discount and I only have to pay tax on $25. This doesn't consider if you have carry forward capital losses. If you do have losses, then these are always applied before the general discount. So there you have it, a quick introduction to how capital gain tax works. And now we will get into the main part of the episode. Today on the podcast, we have our very own Phil Mortimer, and we also have Ben Ritchie, who is the Managing Director of Digital Capital Management, which is a wholesale fund specialising in cryptocurrency. Welcome, Ben and Phil. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Kim. Um, Ben, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. My background is very similar to yourself. So I chartered accountant for many years before going to business for myself and finding my way towards cryptocurrencies. So for the last 
five years for being investing in cryptocurrencies and it's been a full-time job for me. So in the capacity of digital capital management, which is my main role, being a licensed crypto fund, and obviously we're operating in an AFSL environment and there's regulations that come with that. So of course anything I say today, we're, we're talking generally and, and it's not financial advice. I've also seen the cycles in crypto. I've seen many different projects and how they've evolved. And I also hold a directorship on another product called Bamboo App, which is a micro-investing app. So that's for the retail market, whereas the digital capital management is for the wholesale market. So that's uh, that's my background. Wow, you keep yourself busy then. (laughs) All right, perfect. Well, let's get straight into it. Today, we are going to give you all an introductory crash course into cryptocurrency. So, Bill, let's start off. So, Ben, for the punter in the street, can you explain what a cryptocurrency is? Sure. So we've got like five hours, right? <laughs> Just about, yes. Cryptocurrencies, they work on a technology called a blockchain. And a blockchain in its simplest form is like a database. In the case of cryptocurrencies, this database stores a ledger of who owns the cryptocurrency. So similar to an accounting ledger. So then, then you have this word crypto that comes in, which is the cryptography nature of the blockchain insofar as it guarantees the security of the transactions and the participants and the independence of its operations over central authorities um, and it protects double spending. So effectively, the next word obviously, currency, which is a medium of exchange and it's effectively a digitized medium of exchange that we're dealing with. So unlike the US dollar or AU dollar, that has no central authority underpinning that crypto or that currency. Cryptocurrencies are instead managed or overseen by a distributed group of a large number of computers and internet users. So they're all pre-using this on a pre-programmed algorithm. So the cryptocurrencies broadly, they hold the promise of making it easier to transfer funds directly in a digital world without the need of a trusted third party like a bank or a credit card company. Instead, we own our cryptocurrency and it doesn't sit with any third party authority. There you go. I think that's that's the best explanation I've heard so far. (laughs) Good. Okay, cool. So you did touch on it a little bit, but could you try to explain to us how the valuations of crypto work? Sure. Like any currency, uh, cryptocurrencies gain their value based on the scale of community involvement. So broadly speaking, currency gains value if the demand for it's higher than the supply. So when uh, when cryptocurrencies are useful, people want to own it more and it drives up the value. And an example, uh, the most popular is Bitcoin, which over time it has restricted supply and with an increased demand on it, it pushes the price up from its scarcity. But the, the key is that you know, we're in a nascent space, there's lots of different methodologies being formed around how we value these currencies. And obviously with my traditional accounting hat on, I'm always keen at looking at these different metrics. The term that you'll come across in cryptocurrency is a term called tokenomics, which is effectively the economics of that cryptocurrency, how it's evolving, so where the buy and demand pressures are on that particular currency. And, and so first, first and foremost, understanding that, and understanding how it's worked and then some currencies that are complete fluff and you know as being a part of the industry that's one of the, the challenges is, is identifying 
which currencies have no involvement at all in, in terms of having a demand side. There is some traditional uh, tokenomic views that look at trying to value a cryptocurrency similar to the PE or traditional terms and happy to direct people to a website called Token Terminal for that. And then there's other websites like uh, CryptoQuant, Glassnode, and Wubble, and, and these websites, they're looking at different ways of valuing. The most common being what's called Metcalfe's Law, which is the value of a network is proportional to the square root of the number of nodes in the network, i.e. the more people that are involved in the network, the more it's valued. These websites that I've just mentioned, they look at on-chain analytics like you know, how many wallets are being held, what the value of those wallets is, how long they've been moved for, what the transactional volume is over the network, and comparing these against the market capitalisation and, and so forth. They're the ways that we're looking at the tools that we're using, but broadly it's about this supply and demand nature of that particular currency and how many people are actually using it. All right, cool. I think I'll grab those websites off you and we'll put those in the podcast notes if anyone wants to check those out. Sure, no problems. So then that leads me on to, and we're getting lots of questions about this and obviously we're limited in what we can say, is why would someone invest in a cryptocurrency? General advice again, the benefits of investing in crypto or buying cryptocurrency will vary from person to person. Some people are using it for a medium of exchange, uh, which is not so common at the moment. Others are looking at it from an investment perspective. And in any, over, over history, anything that's been used as a, a medium of exchange has to go through a price discovery phase. And in my opinion, that is where we're at with cryptocurrencies. This price discovery phase where we're trying to determine you know, what the, the underlying price is and, and how much we as a society value some of these cryptocurrencies to what they're being delivered. In terms of an investment perspective, certainly all the data that we're seeing suggests that it's being classified as a new asset class. And this is this is something that's really important to understand because it's relatively uncorrelated to any other asset class that's out there. So shares, property, commodities, uh, whatever it is. And when you find a, an asset class that's uncorrelated, you can start thinking about the application of modern portfolio diversity theory. So to get a balanced portfolio, what components should be in that? And if you don't have a new asset class in your portfolio, that's that's what is attracting a lot of people to balance uh, their portfolios accordingly. I think the other thing as well, it's really being seen as a, a hedge against the existing financial infrastructure, particularly with the significant quantity of easing, uh, inflation and bond rates that we're seeing currently. Others, this technology is looking like it's going to underpin a new a new age. It's we're really dealing in a digital world a lot at the moment, and certainly technology advancements in artificial intelligence, uh, electric vehicles, med tech, gaming, Web three, even some communications. They're all looking at building on this platform, blockchain platform, and you know that's that's proving very attractive. And probably the last one that, that's probably left of centre is the cryptocurrency investing is really seen as uh, an expression of beliefs now as well. You can make investments into what's called non-fungible tokens, uh, which is a, a token that represents a specific asset, and that's typically art or an in-game asset or something 
related to a virtual world and we've seen Facebook, you know, looking to change, change their name to Meta recently. And even this fan token these days, so they're tokens that represent decision-making that can be conducted for sporting clubs, particularly soccer teams are, are really looking at that. But we're really, you know, investing into crypto is really like investing into the internet before its worldwide adoption and, and certainly the adoption rates uh, on par with the internet, um, some claim even higher. But really when, when the challenges come when you're making an investment in this space is to look at the fundamentals, research it properly. Not all of these projects will survive 10 to 20 plus years, mm-hmm. um, similar to what we had in the, the dot-com um, you know, boom bust uh, you know, around the, the 2000s. And, you know, the volatility of this, this, this price discovery is very rapid mm. and it's fast moving and it really presents presents real risk for inexperienced investors. So, you know, looking at this at a long-term horizon and not overlaying um, what I call risk on risk, which is um, investing in cryptocurrency to me is, is risky enough. What a lot of people do is they then look at look for the next Bitcoin and they, they try and find the riskiest project that they can in crypto and you're overlaying risk on risk and I think that that is fraught with danger as well. But they're, they're sort of the main reasons why we're seeing most people wanting to uh, take the investment in the space. Thank you for that. That was, yeah. Yeah, that, that answers a lot. Actually. Yes, yes, definitely. So how would one go if they wanted to start investing in crypto? So investment into crypto requires a little bit of a skill set. And this is one of the challenges of new entrants into the space. It's nascent. The, the user experience isn't great for using cryptocurrency. There's a lot of cryptocurrency supported products. So typically people are going to an exchange and there's some great exchanges in Australia that are very reputable. And they're being faced with a trading engine. And that's similar to it. It's a buy and sell order book. And this is a skill that most people really don't understand properly and can't get their head around is how this buy and sell order book works, what is a spread, how the fees get applied and how do you make, depending on the size of your transaction, how do you make a safe and secure transaction. The next step is the storage. How do I store these? And that is itself another challenge. So look, that, that's, that's one pathway. The other pathway, which is, you know, I mentioned in the intro, I'm really focused on building this bridge and making it accessible, investment accessible and easy. And the Bamboo app is certainly one that just takes the heavy lifting out and it just makes it a, a simple process for somebody to do a set and forget micro investment into the space as a dollar cost averaging, does all the storage of the assets for you, doesn't give you order books, finds the best price, etc. Or, or the digital fund, which is um, digital capital management's investment fund, which is, like I said, it's fully managed fund for wholesale investors overseen by a licensed trustee and those pathways mean that you get the expertise or the infrastructure that make it simple for you to get exposure into the into the space i think as well um, one thing to consider when you start investing in the space obviously you guys are uh, taxation specialist and thinking about you know what records you need um, and making sure you've got those but also um, uh, might sound left of centre, but often making your banks aware or checking with your bank 
then you're able to invest in crypto. That um, could be an important step as well. Debanking in the sector is, and debanking of investors in the sector is uh, happening on a, a regular basis. And, and that's one thing you just don't, don't want to have happen to you, you know, if you've got all your affairs going through one particular bank. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. I would not have known that that was any kind of issue. No, we have come across that one. And it it does become a a concern for clients who do want to go down that path and use just transfer money from their own bank account to get involved with cryptos. Wow. Okay. So moving on to that, you did mention wallets and clearly we're not talking leather pouches in our back pocket. So for those who want to hold the actual Bitcoins or Ethereum, how do they go about holding them in a wallet? That's, that's a really good question, Phil. You do need a wallet in terms of holding your cryptocurrency. It's very different to uh, traditional assets, whereby for a traditional asset you would have the likes of a bank, like Commonwealth Bank, for example, looking after your uh, shares or, or, or cash. And Commonwealth Bank have recently come out saying that they are looking to step into the cryptocurrency space and, and certainly offer... They haven't specified, but a, a range of cryptocurrency-related services. But the uniqueness of cryptocurrency is it's is it's a sovereign asset to you. I I can I can have my cryptocurrency in my pocket, and I can travel across country, and no institution globally can remove that from me. From me, they can certainly take a device from me, or they can take a password from me. But there's there's always going to be restrictions in, in getting access to that without my permission. And when we deal with wallets, the, the key is that what we deal with, there's, there's two terms, and this is going to sound silly, but we're, we're termed hot and cold wallets. And so a hot wallet is a wallet that is connected to a live internet connection, and a cold wallet is something that's not connected to a live internet connection. And so if we talk through those two, hot wallets are things like a, a web wallet or a desktop wallet or a wallet that's connected inside a a browser like Chrome browser. And you can also, another example of a hot wallet is a mobile-based wallet, so similar to the desktop and it's on your mobile phone. And so these wallets, if your computer gets hacked and you don't have it sufficiently protected, password protected, the the hacker can access that wallet and, and take your cryptocurrency. The cold wallet, on the other hand, is typically in the form of a small USB device and it's encrypted and you keep it offline or you keep it in a safe or somewhere that you consider a safe location and when you want to use that you plug it into the computer and you complete your transaction and these wallets are fantastic in that even if it's plugged into your computer and you're not using it uh, somebody who hacks the computer still cannot get access because you actually need to physically do things on the device as well as provide passwords in order to move your cryptocurrencies around so they're, they're the main two types of wallets and you know, getting your head around these and understanding them is, and their interfaces is, is really important if you're choosing to venture into cryptocurrency and alternatively, the same reasons I've said before with Bamboo and the digital fund, you know, some investors just go, look, I know there's, there's an opportunity in this space. I don't have the expertise, and don't have the patience or the time to learn this, so I want you to do it for us and that's why those two businesses are going so well. What are stable coins and central bank digital currency? Do you think this will help to make crypto more acceptable to the general public? Yeah, sure. So they're, they're very similar. A stable coin is, is broadly 
a cryptocurrency that seemed to be less volatile than other cryptocurrencies. And so how you achieve this is you look to try and peg that cryptocurrency to something that's backed by something solid, for example, US dollar. So one coin might equal one US dollar or one Aussie dollar. It could be backed by gold or oil or there's even algorithmic stable coins as well. So what this means is that the value is typically always going to be, let's say, matter what the market conditions are. And they're, they're very useful because if you're in a volatile market and you want to hedge out, it actually takes quite some time to convert your, let's say, Bitcoin back to Aussie dollar. And so one of the other pathways you can do is you can quickly, you know, in moments, move to one of these stable coins and then you're avoiding the market fluctuations that exist with Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. So that's a stable coin. The, the central bank digital currency is a government-issued stable coin. And so similar to you know, the Aussie dollar being issued by the central bank, the, the government would issue this cryptocurrency known as a, a central bank digital currency or CBDC for short. We hope that these currencies are prone to manipulation like quantity easing that we're seeing currently because the value will certainly be lost. And the, but I think broadly from an attractiveness of a, a cryptocurrency market, it gives individuals probably an easier pathway into investing into Bitcoin and Ethereum, etc. And I think that's really the, the excitement there. Stable coins and central bank digital currencies are only as good as the group that's overseeing them and working with them. And there's been plenty of speculation over the years that a, a stable coin doesn't have the US dollar, for example, that's underpinning the market capitalization of that particular coin. So certainly do your homework on those. But certainly I think I think central bank digital currencies are gonna come in. It gives the government a greater transparency on the flow of funds around. And I think to be honest it's it's better for a broader adoption of, of crypto generally. Yeah, I was definitely reading that certainly people like the RBA are looking into this quite seriously. So, and obviously you're invested in this area. So where's the future for you? Well, where's the future for current of these cryptos as you see it? Yeah, certainly for me, like I often look at uh, the internet in its early days and we had the intranet, we had intranets. So we had these internal internets and certainly the internet, the public version has certainly been the broad winner. And I think the same with cryptocurrencies. We've got public blockchains, so blockchains that are run by the people in the community, and then we've got private blockchains. And I would consider the, the central bank digital currency a more private um, style chain. So I, I think that certainly a decentralized and distributed kind of currencies are the future. They're going to be the pipeline of the financial markets, in my opinion. They're going to underpin a lot of transactional value globally. The adoption will take time. I think regulations will become clearer and they'll be implemented effectively. And, you know, look, yeah, broadly, for me, uh, the future involves one where I can send money to anybody in the world, you know, within 10 seconds. Mm. And I think that's what we need from a digital economy. And certainly if this metaverse concept takes off, uh, I think that's what we're going to need. People are going to be participating globally in 
in new economies and, and we need fairness and uh, equitability across the broad, not only for you know first world but also third world countries and, and the like. So that's the future I see. It's still a long way off yet. It seems crazy to me that it's taken so long to realise that this is what we need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so just finishing up with our last question then, what type of regulations do you see potentially being implemented in Australia? Yeah, look, I think with this, probably the best directive that we've had recently is from the Select Committee on a, uh, it was Australia as a Technology and Financial Centre, and the Select Committee came out with a report at the end of October of last year and they made a number of recommendations and I think broadly the recommendations give us a good insight into what should happen. I thought it was a, a really well-composed report, but some of those come back to digital currency exchanges. At the moment there are different regulations to a traditional stockbroker, for example, and I think the proving of capital adequacy, the auditing, the responsible people behind it and the governance around those will certainly uh, lift the custody and, and depository regime as well. So who can store these cryptocurrencies on behalf of other people and what sort of competency they have to have, and that's certainly on the cards. Yeah, with regards to the anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism finance regulations, there's a lot to be uh, established there. We are starting a new fund at the moment which accepts cryptocurrency as opposed to Aussie dollar. And the complexities around accepting that and understanding where that money has come from, has it been involved in counter-terrorism before? Uh, there's some really great organisations and technology that's been developed, uh, particularly over the last two to three years, that allows you to go back through the blockchain's history. And if it's gone through an exchange, it will tell you if it's been flagged from a terrorism organisation or through a dark market or a gambling uh, market, it will flag that for you. And so I think the regulations there need to improve somewhat. I'm also going to say um, that we definitely need to have a look at the capital gains tax regime mm-hmm. around cryptocurrency. And the Select Committee certainly recommended that. And you know, having been involved in the sector, it's it's fraught with issues and challenges. So I think you know more clearly definable capital gains or losses or trading gains losses. I think is important in the sector. Interestingly, they, they also flagged company tax discounts for digital asset mining companies. They also, and we discussed this before, um, flagged more transparency and a complaints process around debanking um, for those involved in the cryptocurrency sector by um, some of the banks. So the most exciting element that I saw in that uh, select committee report was particularly around decentralised autonomous organisations so these are known as DAOs for short. They are a, a, a totally distributed company structure where you don't have, well, effectively your shareholders and token holders and all of the activities of the company are pre-programmed in code and, and it's run through a voting mechanism of those shareholders. And so the shareholders could vote changes, they have a core business that they're investing in and certain operations happen around that business without necessarily having a CEO as a typical typical structure. Uh, people still put different do different roles in that business and they get remunerated by that core algorithm that's um, pre-established. And to me, you know, that really reflects how forward thinking the select committee was in trying to bring 
how this technology onto shore for Australia to, to benefit in because this is an amazing revolution. I think it's a, you know it's been many many years since we've had a new asset class, but certainly technology to this extent so disruptive. I think um, you know, Australia really needs to embrace it um, and build the resources uh, here on shore and, and provide incentives to, to focus on this because it's um, it's got an exciting future. We really appreciate you coming on today. It's been very insightful. I have a lot to uh, do some research on, I think. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I we really appreciate you coming on and giving us so much information and yeah, insight into what you do. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, so just before we go, we did think that as accountants, we're probably going we should probably have a look at our side of things. So Phil, what are the tax and capital gain implications of being involved in crypto? That all depends on your intention as a person buying and selling in cryptos. For most people, it will be an investment and it'll be treated like any other investment and capital gains tax will apply. So the normal rules will apply. However, you just need to be realise that when you either sell your cryptocurrency or you exchange it for another cryptocurrency or you convert that currency into Australian dollars, or you actually use that cryptocurrency to buy any goods or services, you're therefore selling that cryptocurrency, and that will trigger your capital gains tax event. So just got to be mindful too, with regarding to capital gains tax, that if you hold it within in less than 12 months, then it'll be fully taxable at your personal rates, or in a super fund at, tw- at say 15%, if you hold it for more than 12 months, then you'll get the general discount of 50% or 10% within the super fund. However, if you're using cryptocurrencies as a trading, you're sitting there buying and selling trade and trading cryptocurrencies constantly as a business, or you are using it to buy and sell your goods all the time for your business, or you are mining cryptocurrencies yourself, you are treated as, they will be treated as an income item as would any normal stock on hand that would have in any other normal business. So that's how they're treated. They are two different ways, but I think generally for, for our clients, they will more than likely be treated as a capital gains tax event than anything else. So it's really up to individual circumstance. Obviously, if you're going to get involved in it, come and have a chat to someone. And as Ben said, this is what the current rules are right now as of you know January 2022. But it's so, such a new thing. The government's still getting up to date on it and rules can change at any time. So just consider that when you are looking at getting into crypto. So that's it for the third episode. Just before I wrap up, there are a few reminders. Firstly, if you're an employer, please make sure you have your employee super lodged and paid by the 28th of January. You do have more time for your BAS as you always do for the December quarter. So this is due on the 25th of February. And as always, we would love to hear your feedback. Please get in contact with us on our socials or through the contact tab of our website. And thank you so much for listening. We really hope you join us for our next episode and that one will be coming out in March. So thank you and bye.